0: Hi, everyone. This is the MedTech Talk podcast, episode 130. I'm your host, Tom Salemi, and I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm equally thrilled, maybe even more thrilled, to have as our guest today, Amy belt Raimundo. Amy's the Managing Director at Kaiser Permanente Ventures, affectionately known as KPV. Of course, it's the venture arm of the highly influential and integrated health system. Amy's a MedTech person, though, through and through. Her career started at Guided the origin of many successful MedTech journeys. It's also the founder of MedTech Women, the organization that uh, holds events, networking, and conferences for women in the MedTech industry. So we're going to talk with Amy more about her MedTech career and her transition into venture. But first, I wanted to tell you about the MedTech conference, which is happening on May 29th in Minneapolis. If you're going, you should consider acting fast. In fact, you shouldn't even consider it. You should just act quickly because our $300 discount is expiring on March 31st. So if you know you're going and you want to save yourself $300, why wait? Go to medtechconference.com to register. And while you're registering, remember, use that MedTech Talk code that you get to use as a loyal listener of this podcast. And you can save another $200 off of that. So that's $500 off of the full price you'll get in for under $1,000. It's a bargain. While you're at medtechconference.com, check out the agenda. A lot of great speakers, including Ashley McAvoy of J&J and Kevin Lobo of Stryker. Very happy to be doing the interview with Kevin Lobo. And we want you there as well. So go to medtechconference.com to register. Use the MedTech talk code, and you'll save $200 off an already discounted price. So register before March 31st. Now we'll begin our discussion with Amy belt Raimundo. First question is, what led her to pursue a career in MedTech? Let's find out.
1: I'm actually a failed chemist. <laughs> I went to undergrad. You failed that how? That Did you blow
0: something was... up? Or
1: no, that would have been more dramatic and more fun. I just wasn't that good at it in college, as it turns out. Uh, I spent a couple summers early on in a, a chemistry lab um, in the town that I grew up in, uh, and then you know, went to college and uh, you know, thought, that this is what I wanted to do. And as one learns in college, uh, you actually get stacked up against other people that are actually quite good at something, and realize that that wasn't my gift. <laughs> um, so I uh, I actually contemplated uh, med school uh, for a hot second. I uh, and then it was I balked at the summer uh, doing orgo and uh, went to cooking school in Europe instead. Oh <laughs> well, summer. it was a nice little pivot. Um, but then it turned out that I was actually quite good at economics. Thank goodness that that happened when it did. Um, but when I left undergrad. I, mean, I contemplated going to graduate school in economics, uh, and then as I was filling out the application, I realized that I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, they were asking me questions about what what career did you want, and I realized that I really needed more exposure um, to the business world, to business skills, and just, you know, content, uh, and so I, the opportunity to join a healthcare-focused consulting firm um, came up in my exploration, and I realized that actually was a nice marriage of, you know, the economics and then, you know, the sort of science and medicine um, that was also piquing my interest. So I jumped in at that point and, so, and then spent five years in healthcare Um doing that, working specifically for hospitals and hospital systems. Um, But even then, I wasn't sure that that was forever. I knew I liked it, but wasn't sure it was forever because it was the only thing at that point, the only industry I'd been exposed to. Uh, So I went to business school to figure that part out um, and took one class in optical networking and telecom (laughs) (laughs) and decided that I actually look, I really do actually like healthcare. Um, and, you know, it was a, you know, a longer story than that, but, you know, really, you really gave me the test as I was exposed to other industries and other opportunities while I was in business school that I really did love the content, um, in healthcare. Uh, so I stuck with it. I just transferred from, yeah, hospital administration and management consulting over to the product side. Uh, I went down the medical device route, uh, at that point, uh, post-business school.
0: So I need to backtrack just for a second. Was, was cooking ever a career thought, or was it just a, an opportunity to spend the summer in, in Europe?
1: Well, the, the irony of it all is that I never cook. I have a <laughs> husband who is both a chemist and a wonderful cook, and so I do no cooking at home whatsoever. He's, uh, he's listening yeah, to this I now
0: saying, talking. what? You did what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly. I mean, it is. We. I have a little diploma that I threatened to hang up in the kitchen for its irony. Um, But no, it was not. I was not contemplating a career. um, But it did seem like a good, you know, expand your horizons uh, kind of experience, which it was. It was fantastic, and it probably did bring forward my interest in international work. um, Just at that relatively young age, you know, wandering around Europe by myself gave me a lot of interest in, you know, areas outside the U.S. as well as confidence that I could, I could pull it off.
0: So what was it you liked about consulting? A lot of people obviously start in that realm and, and people seem to enjoy it, but it doesn't seem to be, well, the people I talk to obviously have decided to do something else, but many people speak fondly of the consulting days. Is it just the variety and sort of the opportunities to see different organizations? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's step. So I did it for five years, which is like you know, 50 years and in, in consulting years, it felt like. Um, and it was a great exposure. Uh, I started focusing a lot initially on clinical guideline development. So it was a really interesting marriage of some of the science and the clinical literature, um, and then the analytics piece and being able to bring that then to the clinicians and say you know how we act you know, how are people actually practicing you know how does that line up and what are what are the big opportunities uh, in that area and you know, that clearly is still you know a huge opportunity today now we were using you know tools that are somewhat laughable <laughs> in today's environment um so it gave me a really good baseline but that was fascinating and i was digging into different clinical areas at depth working with clinicians about you know what their real practice was, what clinical evidence says, um, and how to marry those two things. So that was really fun, um, and really challenging. Uh, and then doing clinical workflow. And again, it was you know super pragmatic. I mean, it sort of is this, you know, how does this, how does this actually work and how do people, you know, how do people make decisions on a day-to-day basis? Um, and I think getting that sort of grounding um, and that relationship building. We were, you know, my firm, we were stationed in the hospital four to five days a week. Um, And my office was always a converted patient room. And actually one of the ones, my favorite one was actually a converted NICU uh, because they had, uh, they were moving multiple hospitals in the system and they had moved the NICU services to a different one of the hospitals. And so they had this empty office space, which was the NICU, and they left the bunnies on the wall at the window <laughs> so You could see your see your baby. Well, it was like, "Hey, there's my consultant."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you had a lot of uh, so, a lot of meetings in other people's yeah. offices. Like, can we not meet?
1: meet <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it was undercutting um, my leverage. So, I, you know, that was fascinating, and I and I was also exposed. My actually, my first project was in uh, Toronto, and so I got immediately exposed to a different healthcare system. Um, before then returning to U.S.-based projects from that point. But I got to see all over the country. I was staffed everywhere, um, in the middle of the country, East Coast, West Coast, Southeast. Um, so that was just enlightening. And, and you know, people are, are super interested. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely an extrovert. So I think that part of consulting appeals
0: as well. So after five years in consulting, Amy pursued her MBA. And, of course, she got it. And in doing so, she actually had the opportunity to uh, take an internship at Guidance. And she turned guided down. She took an internship with Bristol Myers Squibb instead, but she came to realize that MedTech was where she wanted to be. Let's listen.
1: I think what was attractive to me about MedDevice, you know, having been exposed to pharma, is that you know, I don't come with a PhD. I don't come with a technical background because we talked before, I'm a failed chemist. And so Device actually had, from a business person's perspective, a lot more moving parts and a lot more things you could optimize and make decisions around. And so it really, you know, having had sort of the farm exposure where it was a little bit more limited for me and from a business perspective, that the device actually, you know, one was happening on a faster time course uh, and also had more moving parts to to be able to think about and make decisions around from a business perspective and a resource allocation perspective. Uh, So that to me was you know, a better match for my personal background, mm-hmm. um, and I really liked uh, the the team that guided me. As I got exposed to more of the folks, and that has remained true today. I mean, that I you know, I always believe in you know picking your company in part for strategically how it fits with your career, but and then ultimately the sub selection is definitely the people you'll be working with because you'll be working with them you know for the rest of your career.
0: What was it about guidance? Cause so many people i talked to who worked there just point to it as one of their, their high points of their career. They just had a lot of fun there. Uh, was it, was, were you based in Silicon Valley? Was it the fact it was kind of a med tech company yeah. in the Valley? So was it that, or what was it about guidance that made it so special?
1: Yeah, I think there was, um, one of the, uh, full of really smart, really dedicated people, um, who really did the work. And so I think that to me always matters, um, I think it was also a really important. It had a really important mission drive to it um, that really resonated and was was consistent. And mm-hmm. I think you know one of the one of the uh, ways it was it manifested was the yeah you know, tagline is too cheap a word for it, but the built as if intended for your family was often it, it was something that was you know said within the organization and it was often used as a test for important decisions and it really used. Like not, I mean not uh, you know, you know, on the edges, but like as, you know, if we had an important decision to make and if it you know particularly if it was quality or you know, quality oriented, we use that test. And you know, essentially would you put it in your mother? And to me, that centers an organization mm-hmm. around making things that are meaningful and cuts through a lot of things that can get in organizations way move things forward. So, yeah, that to me sort of encapsulated a lot of why Guidant was a special organization.
0: Of course, that all came to an end when Guidant was acquired by Boston Scientific. Amy did not go to Boston Scientific, though. She worked for the drug-eluting stent business, so uh, her division was sold off to Abbott. She remained at Guidant slash Abbott, working on the launch of the Zion Stent. But the acquisition definitely changed the culture, especially as the newly minted Boston Scientific and Abbott folks shared facilities and elevators. It was all sounded kind of weird. Amy didn't know it, but a change was coming. First, let's listen to this break. All right, I bet you think I'm going to bring up the discount code again. I bet you think I'm going to tell you that you need to register for March 31st to save $300. And then if you use your MedTechTalk tech talk code, you'd save another $200, but I'm not even going to mention it. Instead, I want to tell you that we're very thrilled to have Keith Grossman, the newly named president and CEO of Nevro, on our agenda. We already had Keith up there with Karen Gellihue of CareFusion and Lisa Ehrenhart of Intersect ENT. They'll be up there talking about building billion-dollar medtech businesses. It's going to be a terrific conversation. Keith, of course, will tap on his Thoratech experience. Now he's bringing insights from Nevro, one of the, I think, hotter med tech companies out there. Always very excited about Nevro. So uh, it's going to be a great panel, part of a great day. Go to medtechconference.com to check out the rest of the agenda. We're thrilled to have Keith, Karen, and Lisa on the panel, and we want to have you there as well. So I'm not going to mention that if you register by March 31st, you'll save $300, and I promise I won't even talk about the MedTech Talk Code. Not anything. I won't say a word about saving $200 if you just type in MedTechTalk while you're registering under the already discounted rate. So that's it. Promises kept. Let's get back into this conversation with Amy Belt Raymundo. So even after the acquisition and the sharing of the elevators and all that, Amy wasn't really planning to leave guidance slash Abbott. She was involved in launching Abbott's drug looting stent, but She soon began to ask questions about how she wanted to spend her work day. And those questions actually brought some answers from an unexpected source. Let's listen.
1: You definitely reflect upon, (laughs) oh, what do I really like doing um, of what I've been doing? And, you know, for me, the conclusion, you you know, things are up in the air. Um, The conclusion for me was I really liked new technology and new markets and, you know, I think as we were getting bigger as an organization, that, was, that those opportunities were going to make, you know, fewer and further between. Um, and since that, I knew that's really what I wanted to do, I, was, I decided to seek startups, actually, to um, join one um, and was sort of do multitasking, doing you know, the, the diligence work for myself. Uh, at the same time, I was launching a product uh, internationally, uh, <laughs> which is a little much. Um, but that was really the what I was looking for. Um, it was a little bit of a chance meeting or chance reconnecting um, that uh, actually opened up the ATV opportunity for me. I uh, ran into a friend from my consulting days at a you know at an event, um, and he had just joined another venture fund and had just been prior to that at Medtronic. And I said, oh, great. I'm going to take you out to dinner and you're going to give me the short list of all the startup med device companies that I should be looking at because I'm going about it one by one and taking way too much time and I don't have any time because I'm launching this product. Um, And so I took him out to dinner and it was in that conversation. He said, hey, you know, this other firm that, you know, co invests with mine, uh, you know, they are looking for, you know, a senior associate and, you know, they're looking for a background like yours. Do you want to talk to them? And that actually turned out to be ATV. Now, I will not pretend it was a straight line from that conversation to my career in venture or that first job. (laughs) But that was that was the genesis of it. It was very much a sort of a chance um reconnection and you know an opportunity that was opening um just at that moment
0: that's great and you you joined uh again according to the almighty linkedin in in november 2006 which i think would be the height of the the roller coaster ride things where you could see the world from up there and then things just started to dip from there what was that ride like i mean medtech venture uh really had some bumpy times after 2006-2007
1: yeah. Well, it was, I mean, it was in a lot of ways, my time at ATV was a tale of two in, in two markets. Um, Cause it was really wasn't until it didn't sort of crash until, you know, two years later um, in 2008, sort of late 2008. And then, uh, so that actually that time was incredibly frothy. I mean, lots and lots of new companies, all of which, you know, lots of which look the same, you know, things getting funded that, you know, probably shouldn't have an evaluations that were too high, um, and so that was really interesting because everybody was trying to create incubators and other things to get proprietary deal flow and to sort of get out from underneath that dynamic. And then two years later, you had you know the starkest of contrast, uh, where you know nothing was getting funded and everybody was locking down on their on their you know own portfolio and you know figuring out. You know, yeah. How do you how do you keep your own portfolio alive? And then looking for you know corner cases where you know you had no risk but you had upside. <laughs> um, so it was it was fascinating because I think what I took from that was you know, in venture capital. I thought was you know this industry I and mean, you know, everyone talks about it and that's right that it's an apprenticeship industry. But I thought it was you know you apprentice, you learn how it works, and then you employ that. And in my own short initial burst of it, it, everything changed, you know, through that four-year time course. And so there was no, like, oh, hard and fast rules or things that you learned how to do. It's like, no, the market can change incredibly dramatically. And so you don't have these rules to follow or these concepts to employ because you can have, you know, it, it it can change, you know, overnight. Um, and so you've got to really think that through over the arc that you're holding these companies. Um, and so it was, a, it was a great first education in venture capital, but it was uh, not what I expected.
0: Interesting. What well, Do you think that – I was talking uh, to James Edie at uh, Austin Ventures in a podcast a month or so ago, and he had come and he came to venture a little later, so he didn't really get into it until maybe 2011 or 12. So he missed all of that. He missed kind of the – the boom years, and then the bust years. And so what we're faced with today is a reality he knows. But having been through sort of an up and a down, does it does going through those cycles make you a better investor? Do you know what not to do because you've seen it happen before? Or can can a fresh perspective? So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel like, oh, I've seen this before. I don't want to, you know, uh, this is a story I'm all yeah. too familiar with. Do you, do you draw yeah. on that experience?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. Because I think... There are, I mean, because you, you you know the feeling that it was, and then you see how the story played out. Um, and so in some ways, you know, it makes me more cautious around hype cycles um, because you know you're going to live with the company and its fundamentals, whether it's, you know, a boom or a bust. And it's got to be able to maintain its value in both of those scenarios um, because you've seen it happen uh and so i am less likely to bandwagon um in general um it does make i would say that there's an element of caution um that is probably right <laughs> that you know i have to feel like i can represent the the fundamental value of a company to myself and even in a in an environment where you know the the dollars go away for a period of time um that you know that there, the company is still, yeah, you know, will still build and have um, have value and maintain itself and maintain its value over that longer arc. Um, I also really like optionality, also, and so that you're not just living for the big result. Um, the you know, it's like the only path along the way. I like when there is sort of a shorter time frame where there is a yeah there's a you know, there's a, uh, a good meaningful outcome but that has optionality to a larger one just knowing that yeah the environment can change a lot over that time frame and if you've got to your only only opportunity for a return is in that huge scenario long case um, it can be tough to to get through the the short-term, you know, semi-short-term, you know, four or five years
0: of a cycle. Amy really bolstered her venture resume by becoming a Kauffman Fellow. She said the program taught her the ins and outs of the venture business, and really built out her network. The fellowship spanned from 2007 to 2009, so she was in the midst of it during the Great Recession, and she began to hear from LPs and others of the venture industry about how the recession would impact that industry. She was still a junior member of a venture firm, so she saw limited upside. She also saw a great fit at Cavidian Ventures. Let's find out what led her to join the corporate venturing group.
1: Part of it was, you know, this state of the venture, the private venture uh, community. I mean, there was not a lot of upward room for, you know, at that point I was a vice president to become a principal and a partner um, in the private world. But what I had was the combination of private venture experience and corporate med tech experience, and so that actually uniquely qualified me <laughs> for uh, corporate venture at medical devices, because I really understood the navigation and the dynamics of both. Um, and there, and those things often don't fit together that naturally. Um, you know, people that work in small firms. Um, you know have it can have very different ways of working and patience for large corporate <laughs> process um, and then vice versa the people that have a you know, career or large corporate process you know may not you know fit well or enjoy a small firm environment and being able to bring those things two things together was you know so the value proposition I was uh bringing to Covidian. And for me, that gave me the opportunity to start doing deals uh, and get to that next level, which you really need in order to have a career in venture. Um, and And that opportunity saw, turned out great. I mean, that was, you know, more more than I even, you know, I was sort of going in for the ability to do deals and continue in venture, but got way more out of it uh, than just that.
0: When you're when you're negotiating a deal as a member of a corporate venturing team, do you does your prism change at all from that of, of a VC? I mean, obviously, you may look at different companies for different reasons that fit into your corporate parent. But once you're actually into the deal making, how different is that process as an institutional VC versus a corporate VC?
1: I think it depends on how each corporate VC is set up and for how much they press the pedal on the financial return against the strategic impact. Um, I think what was interesting about the time with Cavidian was it was when you know, private venture, as I mentioned, was receding. You know, everyone was sort of locking up um, in terms of protecting their current portfolio, um, but doing less new investments or follow on investments in other people's uh, deals. That was the beginning of the rise of corporate venture within uh, Device. I mean, there was always the JJGCs in the world, but. Yeah, you know, really, the expansion of the corporate venture started then, and so in some ways, you know, we were acting like traditional venture capitalists as opposed to coming around, you know, coming in at the last round right before you acquire, which is a very different negotiation than if you are coming in at a B Series B. You can't overprice the deal because they still have to raise the C and the D, maybe the E, um, before they're really a takeout target. Um, and so it's gotta, the pricing has got to survive that process. Um, and so you have to think much more like a traditional venture capital, capitalist in terms of pricing. Um, I think from a what was an interesting offset um, was, you know, I think we had less of an uh, appetite. We didn't have to drive our return multiple as high um, as traditional venture capital groups. Um, but we also were more realistic about what the exit actually would look like. And so in some ways that came out in the wash, like in terms of our pricing, (laughs) because, you know, we were talking to the people that would be the buyers within our our own organization. And so we, I think, had a a realistically more um, conservative view of what the ultimate exit would look like. And therefore our, you know, smaller appetite for a multiple offset the fact that, you know, the exit was probably going to be smaller. Um, so I, we ended up not, you know, sort of participating much more like a um, traditional venture fund. Um, what I really enjoyed about it was that that connection to the you know potential acquirers and you know, having the insight about what they were looking for and why and what the dynamics were uh, within the organization um, and within the market. Uh, because I think when I you know, with looking from the outside, you sort of project upon organizations about what they're looking for, um, but you often get a lot of it wrong.
0: So let's fast forward a bit to then how that experience at Kavidian, uh translates to what you're doing today for uh, for Kaiser Permanente Ventures. First, just tell us a bit about uh, where you fit into the the behemoth of Kaiser Permanente. <laughs>
1: yeah, so the venture group um, is uh, sits sort of in the middle of Kaiser Permanente. Obviously, we are not the focus of Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> but in terms of we have representation um, both from a funding perspective from through all the all the areas of Kaiser Permanente, um, as well as uh, investment committee uh, leadership that we work with closely um, and and improve each one of our investments. They represent you know, all the the key components of Kaiser Permanente. And so we have the opportunity um, to really think, you know, broadly about all the technologies that are coming through within the healthcare space, you know, spanning provider, payer, hospital system, medical office, et cetera, um, that, you know, really could impact healthcare. Um, so we get that surround sound, Um and then, you know, are able to have access to both the leadership level and then the uh, content expert and on the ground level um, within KP to really understand, you know, what people really do need. And again, you know, I think just like Vidian, you can project from the outside about what the true needs are, um, but we, you to get it wrong. And so actually being able to speak to the people that are making the decisions or, you know, making resource trade-offs. Uh, it really informs, you know, what's likely to get uptick um, and be real useful. You know, we'll, we'll still get it wrong. As, you know, things evolve and change, um, but it really, I feel, gives us an advantage uh, from an investing perspective, as well as, you know, framing it in. You know, how is this going to impact? You know, what is the impact going to be um, from a, you know, KP perspective? Uh, it doesn't constrain us, so we don't invest only in things that would be useful to KP because, you know, even with a big customer, N of one customer does not make a financial return. Uh, And then our model is is distinct. And so we really look uh, to make sure that there is a broader, um, you know, not just tied to a specific model, but there's a broader need um, than just ours. Um, But we certainly get a really good um, ground truth about what's needed and, and the severity of the need or the severity of the opportunity and what the dynamics are behind it.
0: So is your primary customer the the surgeon or the physician's office where patients are being treated or is it the, the back office nowadays where they're collecting revenue and doing billing and, and whatnot?
1: It's all the above. And that's why we have in our investment committee, our representation spans you know, executive leadership in all of those categories um, because there's opportunities everywhere. Um, And, you know, in some ways it's a challenge for the fund because we cover such a broad span. um, But that's also for me, what makes it so interesting. Um, And so I think that's what makes it a a really interesting place to work, particularly because so much is changing, you know, that, you know, inclusion of technology in almost every aspect of the provision of healthcare and healthcare benefits um, really sort of creates a convergence point for a lot of these different opportunities. So, you know, whereas before we had a sort of more of a sector focus, um, now it is a little bit more this, you know, need focused. Um, and so we're looking at where are there opportunities to remove, you know, administrative burden. Um, or create efficiencies because you know there's you know opportunity to pull costs out of the system if we can be more efficient or faster um, on the back office side. But then it's all the reach out all the way to the, the clinical side where there's a clinician working with a patient. and What are those technologies that you know improve an outcome or pr- improve a patient experience or a member experience if they're you know not you know, actively working with a, a clinician, but they are, you know, a health plan member, you know, what are those opportunities? And so it's it's really exciting because there's so many new opportunities and technologies coming through and seeing tech really come into healthcare in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, I think it's creating a lot of those opportunities uh, and, you know, obviously challenging, um, because you know, old and new coming together, <laughs> um, and industries coming together, which uh, you know has its challenges. But it, I think overwhelmingly, the the opportunity it creates is is much more important and much more exciting.
0: So, what does a a med tech company need to look like to draw interest from and eventually an investment from Kaiser Permanente Permanente Ventures? What uh, what do they need to Offer uh, how do they need to I guess demonstrate value for the system?
1: the The obvious answer is that it affects outcomes for our members and our patients. Um, and so we look to see evidence of that, and it has to be a meaningful difference. Um, subtle differences you know aren't particularly interesting um, and, and, and tough to maintain over a long period of time. But, you know, opportunities that really do change the outcome that we could imagine, you know, on a broad base, um, being able to, to affect the quality of a, you know, of a patient's life, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, pretty simple, straightforward. I think the part that's probably, uh, even more pronounced but it was true at Cavidian and it's it's even more pronounced at KP is the evidence that backs that up um, and granted it you know different stages of a company's life um, you know they'll have different le- levels of evidence but you know I think one thing that I took away from Cavidian was if you're going to acquire a technology that technology has to have legs and part of the legs, is the evidence base both in terms of being able to support and maintain reimbursement but also just the value that would create over over time because you're investing you know a lot of resources once you acquire a technology you need to be able to maintain that over a 5 to 10 year period um, and if you know if the the outcome erodes um, or the payment erodes because the outcome erodes, um, you know, you've you know, you just wiped out your opportunity and, and, the, and the spend you've, um, and the risk you've taken. Yeah, KP, it's even more pronounced because we're talking about our members' outcomes. And so we are looking for um, the evidence that something will, you know, that will be maintained, um, that it'll have an impact and that impact, you know, isn't going to erode quickly.
0: So what is the best way to get in touch with the folks at KPV? Amy says you can find their email addresses on the website. The email addresses work and they do respond. They may respond a little more quickly if you have another investor lined up already. But they also want to see how you define the need that you are going to meet because they are, obviously have great resource. They can go to their physicians and their back office administrators, and they can really uh, test your theory. So, be precise and be direct about what need you will meet with your device. I Had the opportunity then to ask Amy about the state of medtech. Where are we? Where are we headed? She had some interesting thoughts on what the investment opportunities are today and how hospital systems view. The uh, current early stage financing situation let's listen.
1: Well I think there are some um, really good opportunities right now um, because companies that have been developing and you know developing their product, developing their evidence um, and really getting you know developing their manufacturing are coming to maturity now um, and are, are reserved right for investments. Um, and real you know, from a venture capitalist perspective, you know, opportunistically, um, that's a great place to be um, because you know there are all these folks where the when, you know the the dollars rolled out, and the companies that survived that um, become real attractive uh, because there's fewer of them and they're they're mature um, and have great evidence packages that that make them you know interesting acquisition targets. And so if you're able to invest in that timeline, um, you know, that's, that is a really good opportunity and also really good for patients because that means those things get to market. Um, I think there's question marks on, you know, earlier stage investing, um, because I think we've all learned that this takes longer. Um, and so I think that is probably still an open question about how much early stage, Um, investment goes in and what what those investments need to look like um, because also the acquirers have gotten bigger. And so you almost have to hold those things longer in order for the acquiring group um, to to move the needle for them. And so I think that still sort of remains to be seen. Um, But I think anywhere in those environments where you can, obviously, going after huge markets helpful um, because it justifies the long hold time. Um, and I think anywhere you can remove some of the stacked risk um, because I think he, it's it's hard to go after a you know, moderately sized market with all the risks in hands from an early stage perspective and scientific development, uh, clinical regulatory reimbursement market, acquire a risk. You can't stack all those up and go after a moderately sized market so where you can remove some of those stacks um and then expand the market size i think yeah that's probably you know more likely to be funded i think some of the smaller opportunities are going to need to look for different funding sources um like and i many of them are you know, family offices and other things and also just need to raise i think probably a more modest amount um and keep themselves you know more targeted
0: just just a quick follow up. How does the your your hospital sponsor your system sponsor? How do they view the uh, the dearth of capital in, in the early stage of technology for early stage medtech? Is there a concern that new technologies aren't being developed, and they're not going to see them coming down the pike, or or and they're not going to see them eventually come to their systems, or is there a feeling that we have enough new technology as it is, and we don't need to introduce uh, things that you know might cost more money into Yeah, and I
1: I would say that they they don't look at um, the world that way. I mean, it's sort of a different lens. Um, I think that they don't like to see new technologies that haven't proven their value being utilized because that, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I hear within KP, um, which I think is a good framework, is being good stewards of our members' dollars um, because we are both health plan and provider, you know, we don't want to overspend on something that's not adding value because that just translates into higher premiums and, a, and a more of a burden on our members. Um, and so that, because we're integrated, gives us a different frame of reference. Like you have to prove that something is valuable before we want to spend the money because otherwise it's wasteful. Um, and so I, I think, you know, they would rather see something really prove itself out and be valuable. And that's great. Like that's not, I mean, that's exactly what we should be doing and using, um, and sort of get rid of the things, um, that, you know, aren't at that level. And so I think they'd rather see the, the have and have not separate, um, but they don't think of it in the same terms of, um, oh, you know, med device. Um, things going away because they just don't have that frame of reference. That is not what they're. That's not what they're exposed to. That's
0: a fair point. Great, well, it's been a great conversation. I'm glad you failed as a chemist because you got to join <laughs> us on on MedTech Talk. So appreciate your uh, taking great, the time.
1: Great, thanks, Tom.
0: Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. If you could please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast, we'd love to have even more people listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe. That way you'll make sure you don't miss an episode in the future. If you could also uh, share these episodes on social media, share them on LinkedIn, share them on Twitter. Love to, uh, to see them up there. Feel free to tag me. I am at MedTechTom. You can also reach me directly at Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm also on LinkedIn. Would love to connect with you there. And uh, feel free to shoot me an email, Tom at Healthogy.com. Healthogy is spelled with the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. G is the producer of this podcast and the MedTech Conference, which of course is happening on May 29th and May 30th. In Minneapolis. Once again, this is your final opportunity to save $300 off the final registration fee. So go to medtechconference.com to register. And please do use that MedTech Talk code. Tune in next week, folks. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you at the MedTech Talk Podcast.